gentleman. Uh, what are your daughter's birthdays? Yes, uh, May 28, 2009, August 8, 2013, and 2024, 2006, and and these girls singing. <laughs> Who, who wants to follow that, right? Weren't they awesome? Can we give them a hand again? Sadie, Eva and Sadie Olson. So great. So dads are famous for a lot of things, aren't they? Like we all know that. Maybe um, knowing all the details of their kids' lives is not one of them, admittedly. But they are good at other things, right? Like grilling. When you need something grilled, call dad. Yard care. Excellent. Uh, experts at yard care. Um, keen sense of fashion. I think this is always, we can count on dads for that. And of course, dad jokes. Dad jokes are always a hit, right? And I'm sure that, see, there was one right there. My, that's what my daughter saying, dad, that was a really bad dad joke. But I'm sure many of us can even recall things that our father told us um, growing up that have stuck with us through the years. And some of them are just classics that every dad breaks out, like when I was your age, or a little dirt never hurt, anyone and of course the old standby go and ask your mother or how about don't make me stop this car right and every dad says this you know money doesn't grow on trees right over and over and over we all heard that growing up my dad had several very we'll call them famous but or infamous sayings and he hauled this one out Whenever I finished with an elaborate explanation about why I fell short on some task, a.k.a. Um, making excuses or blaming other people, and he'd say, Michael, no matter where you go, there you are. And for the longest time, I was like, duh. Like, what's that have to do with anything? And then it hit me one day. I'm like, oh, I think he's suggesting I might be the problem here. Thanks, Dad. So any, and even if we can't forgive the bad jokes or the repeated sayings or the lack of attention to some details, we all know that fathers play a critical role in the lives of children. And for all of us who didn't have a father or lost our father, had or have a strained relationship with our father, I really am truly very sorry. And the pain of that reality, I think, makes the point of how important they are. Fathers are vitally important for the, flourishing of a, for the flourishing of a child, the strength of a family, the formation of a community and a society, and for all kinds of reasons, but for one in particular that I think is going to show up in the passage that we're going to look at today as we continue our read through the book of John this summer. Before we jump into that, just a few reminders of where we've been and some of the things we've looked at so far. Let's remember that. The Gospel of John is one of four short biographies of the life of Jesus in the Bible. And so far, in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 of John, we've discovered a few things. The first one is, right at the very beginning of John 1, we've discovered this, that God is here and that God is on our side. The Bible says in one translation, he's moved into the neighborhood. John also has told us like why it is that he's writing this book, that we might trust in this goodness of God. Um, because living with this trust 
is the key to cultivating a particular kind of life. The kind of life that we've discovered in the last two weeks, it's the life that created us and it's the life that we long for. It's the life that Jesus calls the abundant life. And then last week we looked at Jesus' first miracle and we found that the way that we enjoy and experience the miracle of the abundant life of God's grace is as we take part in sharing it. It was the servants at this wedding that knew that Jesus had turned water into wine. Nobody else did. And all of this, according to, God, to John and his gospel, is very much worth wanting, this kind of life. And so by chapter 3, what we find in the book of John is that Jesus has gathered a small following of people now. They're later going to be called his disciples. And his disciples can only um, delicately be described as the B team, okay? Uh, this is a group of misfits. It really is, from start to finish. They're, each one of them has at least one horrific flaw in their life, maybe more. Um, these are guys that have been left out and left behind by the religious establishment, and often for reasons that we would struggle to disagree with. I mean, some of them are pretty rough characters. So, uh, you know, we're often asked, why the storyline tries so hard to be inviting and inclusive of folks who've either walked away from faith and or God and or church or have been, uh, or have been turned off by those things or have been turned away by those things? And the easiest answer is because that's how Jesus did it. When God shows up, when God moves in the neighborhood, this is how he started, and it's who he started with. Jesus pursued people. He pursued folks who didn't get picked for the religious team. They were the left outs, and they were the left behind. They didn't play well with others. They asked all the wrong questions at all the wrong times, and I know that many storyliners kind of resonate with that narrative when it comes to our relationship to God and faith and the church. But there are exceptions to that. There are other kinds of people in the Bible that encounter Jesus who are interested in him. They're curious about him. And, and one of them was a man named Nicodemus. And um, this is what the Bible says in John chapter 3 about this particular guy. There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Well, how can someone be born again when they are old, Nicodemus asked, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Now, let's be honest, we've all heard this phrase, born again, uh, born again Christian. We know from polling that it is one of the least popular um, types of Christianity in America. People run away from this notion um, and run away from that label because to be born again comes with a lot of cultural baggage nowadays. It didn't used to, 
but it does now increasingly more and more. And it's often associated with being a certain very, being a certain kind of Christian, a very conservative, usually very serious, uptight um, Christian who is often, and this is just my opinion, a really bad dancer, okay? Those don't necessarily go together, but they seem to, okay? Um, it, it, if it's not that kind of person that it's associated with, it, then it's associated with someone who like was just desperate. I mean, just completely down and out and, and needs a total life overhaul because they're so messed up. So it seems to be one of those two things that, um, those two kinds of people that take on this label of born-again Christian, and it's, and, and it's gotten a bad rap in our day, and it's really tragic because this analogy of being born again, as we see here in John chapter 3, it's, it's, it's too bad that it's been hijacked because Jesus used it himself in John 3 here, and it's his offer to any and all to begin life again with a new plan and a direction, a new source and a new goal. And the Bible being born again is not something for just certain types of people. The super serious fundamentalist religious person or the way down and out person. Now, how do we know this? How do we know that it's not just for certain types of people? Well, because Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now, Nicodemus wasn't just anybody. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was kind of like this religious slash civic council like you you have to picture the rotary club combined with city hall merging with like a church elder board put together with the best country club in town that's what the sanhedrin is okay in other words nicodemus was very successful he was powerful he was connected he was accomplished he was wealthy like a pillar of the community he had it going on now, as a Pharisee, which was a certain kind of Jewish person at this time, and which literally means, by the way, to be separated. So as a Pharisee, Nicodemus would have gone to great lengths to keep all of the rules, to show up on time every week to church, to do everything he was supposed to do, and more than anything, to not be polluted by the outside world, to not be corrupted by the culture. So they, they, were, they, were set up, they were separated, the Pharisees. And he was a paragon, not just of religious piety, but also of moral excellence. Now, on top of all of that, unlike the rest, unlike the rest of the Sanhedrin, which, you know, as you might imagine, could kind of come off as self-important and self-righteous, Nicodemus doesn't seem to be that way. From all the accounts in the Bible, it's like he's open, he's humble, he's curious, it was actually quite courageous for him to come and approach Jesus at all. I mean, he does it under the cover of night. So it's not like he, he's Braveheart or anything. But like he is, he's actually like wants to know more. He wants to know more about Jesus. The bottom line is this. Nicodemus is a good guy. He's highly regarded by everyone. And yet Jesus says to him, you must be born again. Whoa. Like, nothing could have surprised him more than that. He was not expecting to hear that. In fact, he goes to Jesus, and if you look at this entire encounter, it's basically like, hey, Jesus, I think I can help you out here. If we can get together, I can, like, market you. I can put you under the big, bright lights. So 
But Jesus goes, you must be born again. It's not like Jesus is saying, hey, Nick, listen up. Like, you're doing really well. Don't get me wrong. Let me just get this lint off your shoulder and straighten your tie. Make sure you call your mom a little bit more and you're going to be good to go. That's not what he says. Jesus looks at this really good, moral, open, humble, curious, very religious man. And he says, to follow me is to start over.
So Jesus meets with this super great guy, Nicodemus, really good man, and he's telling him, you need to go back to the beginning, and leave behind your reputation, all of your accomplishments that you've worked so hard to acquire, and become like a baby. You must be born again to experience and enjoy what I'm inviting you into. That's what Jesus is saying to him. Now look, when... When Jesus chose his 12 disciples, you could argue, and many scholars have, that he's basically picked the 12 biggest losers he could find. Like morally, financially, politically, socially, educationally, they were at the bottom of the barrel. By choosing the 12 disciples that he did, it's almost as if Jesus is communicating to all of history, if these yahoos can do it, anybody can, okay? <laughs> I think generally speaking, we think way too highly of the disciples, right? They were dingbats. I mean, start to finish, all the way to the end, right? Or almost to the end. They finally got their act together at the very end. But Nicodemus is different. He is on the extreme other end of the spectrum. This is not something you'd expect. Don't miss what Jesus is doing here. All of us may be better than all 12 disciples, but none of us are better than Nicodemus. None of us. So you have to like imagine the best person you know. The person in your life that is like unbelievably kind, super smart, so forgiving, really open, absolutely humble, successful and generous. The, the person in your life that you admire most. Now, according to Jesus, even they must be born again so it's like you can think of it like this it's one thing to say anyone like anyone even the 12 disciples can be born again it's quite another thing to say everyone even nicodemus must be born again and jesus is saying both and the question is why why and it isn't what we think. I think it's not what we think at first. It's not what we've been even led to believe way too often. To be born again is not a call to religion. It is not a call to be more moral. It, because you can't get more religious or more moral than Nicodemus. Jesus is, in fact, he's doing just the opposite. He's challenging religion. And he's challenging moralism and their ability to deliver us to, to us and to deliver through us the abundant life that we all want to be a part of. That's what's going on in this scene. You see, Nicodemus showed up and goes, Jesus, I can help you with what you're doing. Essentially, he was saying, to try to get everyone to be more like me. And Jesus is like, time out. No, you're not. You're not seeing what, what I'm doing here. 
So hear, hear what Jesus is saying. Our personality, our ethnicity, our class, our race, our nationality, our moral aptitude, our religion, education, bank balance, political views, talent, accomplishments, our reputation. None of that matters to him. None of that matters to him because none of it will ultimately work. Even when we have it all, even when we have all those things at 10 out of 10 level, it's placing our hope in the wrong things. It's placing our hope in the wrong things. One of my favorite films of all time is The Shawshank Redemption. It's super old now, so some of you probably haven't even heard of it, kids. But it's a, it's a phenomenal film. And in many ways, it is about the nature and necessity of hope. And that's what Jesus is bringing up here to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus doesn't see it yet. It's all about hope. So in this scene, one of the prisoners has just been re uh, released from solitary confinement for breaking into the warden's office and playing classical music over the PA for all the prisoners. Now he did this to give them all a little hope. And I want you to notice how it's received by the most experienced inmate. There's no such thing as easy time in the hole. Right, a week in the hole is like a year. Yes, right. I'm Mr. Mozart to keep me company. <laughs> so they let you tote that record player down there, huh? He's in here. In here. That's the beauty of music. They can't get that from you. Haven't you ever felt that way about music? Play the main harmonica as a younger man. Lost interest in it, though. Didn't make much sense in here. Here's where it makes the most sense. I need it so you don't forget. Forget? Forget that there are places in the world that aren't made out of stone. That there's a there's something inside that they can't get to. That they, they can't touch. It's yours. What are you talking about? Hope. Hope. Let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. It's got no use on the inside. You better get used to that idea. You know, today is not only Father's Day, it's also Juneteenth. Um, it's the day that, as a country, we celebrate the last of the enslaved people being freed after the Civil War. And it's now a federal holiday, and it's we celebrate it tomorrow officially, but it's today. But when we are locked up, when we are enslaved by the present, having any hope, certainly having the wrong hope, can be very, very dangerous. It's one of the great lessons that we learned that from the enslaved people uh, of America. If you listen to their songs, if you look back at their early writings and, and how they communicated with one another, is they knew how to hope appropriately. 
This is why Jesus is saying, no matter how high you've climbed, Nicodemus, or no matter how low you've sunk, 12 disciples, you must be born again. You have to start over. And then that, that begs this question, I think, like, so what exactly is this new birth? Like, where does it come from? This is the question that Jesus wants us to ask when he says you must be born again. You know, another of Jesus' first followers, a man named Peter, used the same analogy of a new birth, and he explained it this way, and I think this will start to get us back towards what fatherhood has to do with all this. So in the Bible, Peter writes this. His mercy is abundant, and so he has become our father in a second birth into a living hope through the resurrection from the dead of Jesus into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Another translation of that same passage puts it like this. We've been given a brand new life and have everything to live for, including a future. And the future starts now. God is keeping careful watch over us and the future. Okay, so here's the thing. I'm going to try to connect some dots for us here. Stick with me. Here's the thing. Human beings are massively impacted by our understanding of the future. In, in a very real sense, a future that is isolated to just somewhere over the rainbow, as beautiful of a song as that is, if we're just it's just magical thinking if it's just wishful thinking if it's just randomly hoping for something and we have no reason to believe in it or to trust in it it won't work for us so it's the reason i love that second translation the future starts now because that's always true for all of us essentially what we understand or trust our future to be guides how we are living right now now i know we don't always think of it that way but so let me give one example that i think can kind of break through this illusion that we think we're just living in the present and we're not we're very much controlled by our understanding of the future of what we trust or think the future is going to be and so let me give you an example think about one financial example when someone wins the lottery what is the first thing they do what is it? They quit their job. They quit their job. Why? Why? Because they no longer need money for the future. Their hope, their trust in a secure and flourishing future changes their present. We get that when it comes to money, right? saving up enough for retirement, winning the lottery. When, you, when, those, when one of those things happens, hopefully one or the other happens someday, right? It changes how we live in the present. This is why the Bible speaks so much about fathers. Now I'm going to try to connect another dot here for us. And why God himself, we talked about this last week, he's pictured as a king, as a shepherd, and there's all kinds of uh, analogies, uh, as a groom, but why God has talked about so often himself as a father. And here's why. This is what anthropologists tell us, okay? Fathers are for children 
the presence of the future. Oh my goodness, this is, this is why they are so critical in the lives of all of us. Fathers are for children, the presence of the future, a future hope. A good father represents not just protection and provision in the present, but think about, and look, it's not that only fathers can do this and mothers can't. It's just, I'm saying archetypally, fa a father's role in life, while maybe not about all the details of life, I will grant you that, okay? But a father's role in life is about protection and provision, protection and provision in the, in the present and preparation for the future. Right? This is what our dads always do. They stick the hammer in our hands or the other tool or show us how to do X, Y, and Z. They're training us. They're educating us. Why? So that we can survive in the present and thrive in the future. Social scientists have, um, and anthropologists have ripped off a term from biology. It's, and forgive me if I mispronounce this, science nerds, but it's called autopoiesis. Autopoiesis, and technically it refers to a system's ability for reproducing and maintaining itself, okay? All living systems are autopoetic in that sense. So when fathers engage in what anthropologists describe as intergenerational transmission, okay, they are protecting our present and they are preparing our future. Fathers are for children, the presence of the future. Our trust in that, in them, is like winning the hope lottery. That's what fathers represent in our life. They are like winning the hope lottery. The presence of a flourishing future changes our present this is why the this is why faith in our dad's love for us is so critically important to the development of children so when jesus says to nicodemus you must be born again he's not saying you've got to start over so that you can be pure and clean yourself up and all this kind of crap nicodemus is already all of that that's not what he's saying He's saying that you have to begin again with a living hope for the future. You're, you have to have a living hope for the future because without that, you can't experience the, the present as an abundant experience. This is an opportunity for Nicodemus to recalibrate his life based not on his own goodness, not on his own performance, but on God's. Let me put it this way. To be born again into a living hope is to be reminded of the reality of how, how much, and why we are loved. How, how much, and why we are loved. And beyond just being reminded of that, is, it is to rejoice in it in such a way that we rely on it in our real everyday lives. How are, how are we loved, how much, and why? That's what's going on here. These, these are my um, friends, Alex and Jillian, they, with their new baby girl, Finley Grace. She's the newest person I know. 
right? Just beautiful. And this is what Alex, as a brand new father, has already discovered. While he desperately wants Finley to grow up to be strong and smart and loving and kind, here's what he's already discovered. He loves Finley with all that he has already. He couldn't and he never will love her more than he does right now today. Regardless of how Finley ends up performing. So how does he love her? He loves her unconditional, unconditionally. Finley, Finley's present nor future performance will never change how Alex loves her. Now how much does he love her? This little baby girl can give him nothing except sleepless nights and filled diapers. <laughs> right? They know over here, right? But from the moment she was born, Alex is now living for her. And I have no doubt, and no one in here has any doubt, that he would throw himself in front of a bus for her. So how much does he love her? Totally. Absolutely. Thoroughly, completely, with all that he is, all that he has, and all that he ever will be. A father's love for his, for his children protects, provides, and, pre and prepares. In this sense, a father's love is the presence of the future. A secure, flourishing future. We have to trust in that love for it to change our present. And if we don't, if it's absent, if it's missing, our present is very, very difficult. Now this begs the final question. How, how much, why do our fathers love us? Why does God love us? Well, why does Alex love Finley? Here's what we know it's not. It's not because of what she can do for him. She can't do anything. It's simply because she is his. She belongs to him. He doesn't have another reason. He doesn't need another reason. And while someday as she grows and matures and develops, there will be other things to love about Finley, I'm sure. None of her amazing abilities or attributes will be the reason for why he loves her. Alex will love Finley for the rest of forever because she's his. Not because of her goodness, but because of his. To be born again into a living hope is to be reminded of this reality that every new parent knows. We might not know that we know it, but we know it. The nature of true love, it is unconditional, it is absolute, and it is not based on our child's goodness, it's based on the parent's goodness. And when we rejoice in this reality about God's love for us, to the point where we rely on it, it's almost like being born again. It's like being born again. This is what Jesus is saying. This is what he's inviting us into. The presence of a flourishing future invading our hearts in such a way that it changes how we look at all of life. Life is no longer a proving ground where we have to show our worth, earn our place, protect ourselves. Life isn't the daily grind now to be lovable. Life is the daily, is the oppor daily opportunity to enjoy and extend the love of the Father that we've always had and can never lose, that is 
the abundant life. That's what it is to enjoy, to experience and enjoy, to embody and extend God's love. When it comes to our need for a, for a living hope, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those like Nicodemus, who right now, deep down, believe, yeah, of course, God loves me. I mean, look at me. All that I've done, all that I've accomplished, all that I do, I'm a good person. Jesus is saying to you, you must be born again into a living hope. Because your hope and your goodness isn't a living hope. It's a deadly hope. This performance-based life is going to wear you out and grind you down. And the second kind of person for, are those of us like the disciples, who for whatever reason, deep down, believe, no way could God love me. Look at me. I've messed up. I mess up. I'm a mess. And Jesus is saying, you can be born again into a living hope. Anyone can be born again no matter how messy. Everyone must be born again no matter how good. Do you, do you see it? This is Jesus' glorious gospel of grace. A few lines later in this conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus sums it up like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, as in trusts in him, is reminded by him, rejoices in him, relies on him as God's demonstration of God's unconditional and absolute love that's based on God's goodness, not mine, well, people like that will never die. Fathers are many things. They play many roles in our lives, but it is what all of these roles represent, hint at, and foreshadow that's the most important. Fathers are the presence of the hope of a flourishing future. And when we trust in the Father's love, when we have that kind of hope, it's like starting over. It's like being set free. It's like being born again. Dear Red, if you're reading this, you've gotten out. And if you've come this far, maybe you're willing to come a little further. You remember the name of the town, don't you? Zewatanejo. I could use a good man to help me get my project on wheels. I'll keep an eye out for you and the chessboard ready. Remember, Red, hope is a good thing. Maybe the best of things. And no good thing ever dies. I will be hoping that this letter finds you. And finds you well. Your friend, Andy. For the second time in my life, I'm guilty of committing a crime. A role violation. Of course, I doubt they'll toss up any roadblocks for that. 
Not for an old crook like me. Born in God, Texas, please. I find I'm so excited I can barely sit still or hold a thought in my head. I think it's the excitement only a free man can feel. A free man at the start of a long journey whose conclusion is uncertain. I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams. I hope that we all have experienced that kind of love from our earthly fathers, like I have. I know far too many of us haven't. And that can make Father's Day really tough, but know this, that the best earthly father can only take us so far. And we're only meant to. They are hints, they are foreshadowing of a love that we were made by and that we were made for. To be born again into a living hope. And this morning, I've asked our dear friend Lindsay to come out and sing one more very special song for us on Father's Day. Lindsay and his wife Sue lost their son John almost two years ago. And uh, I had John as a student. I coached him as a basketball player. He was a wonderful young man. John's wife Jamie actually played this song for Lindsay after he passed away. And his passing has left a tremendous sense of loss in their family. But I can tell you this that their faith in God's love for them and for John has sustained them and gives them a living, a living hope. So Lindsay wants to share this song with all of us this morning on Father's Day as a tribute to how and how much and why our Heavenly Father loves us.
Sometimes when you're doing simple things around the house, maybe you'll think of me and smile. I'm tied to you like the buttons on your blouse. Keep me in your heart for a while. Keep me in your thoughts. Take me to your dreams. Touch me as I fall into view. When the winter comes, keep the fires lit. Pleasant stream, keep me in your heart for a while. These wheels keep on turning, but they're running out of steam. Keep me in your heart for a while. what the Father's love does for us when it's held in our hearts. It is the presence of a flourishing future. And nothing less than this kind of living hope is required if we are going to live in and live out the abundant life that created us and that calls us into our best life every day. So on this Father's Day, may we all remember and rejoice in and rely on the good God who invites us all to be born again into his living hope. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this place, for this opportunity to be together. We thank you for our fathers, and for what fathers mean to us in our lives. And for the reminder that, for the foreshadowing, for the hint that they are of how you love us and how much you love us and why. I pray that this week you would help us to step into the freedom of life as an opportunity 
to share your love, to set aside the deadly hope of trying to earn our lovability and instead just accept it and share it. Thank you for loving us like that. Thank you for the invitation to be your child. God, I pray that as we leave here this morning, you help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for coming, folks. Happy Father's Day. We'll see you next week.